Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. And one of the things that the pandemic has done for a lot of people is to help them reevaluate some of the things that we have all sort of taken for granted. Uh, I know that even how we do church is one of those things that has been considered and reconsidered in the face of this pandemic. Uh, something that may have seemed so routine for many of us, even for the majority of our lives, like going to church in America, uh, has suddenly become uncertain. And in the face of that reevaluation, have you ever taken the time to think about how truly strange it is that this church exists at all. And I don't only mean GFC, although, yes, of course, we're strange uh, in our own way, um, but, but I do mean the, the Christian church in America at all is a very, very strange thing. Because it's easy to think that this is a normal thing because we've been doing it for so long. And certainly Christianity is perceived as a Western religion, especially in Japan, as as Ali mentioned this morning, uh, which is one of the reasons why it is so hard for the Japanese Christians because Christianity is seen as this Western religion. But friends, America didn't even exist In the days of the early church. And Christianity didn't exist when God made his promise to Abraham. That his offspring would number as the stars. And yet here we are. Meeting together in this place. And over Zoom. As part of the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. So on one hand. Christianity is no more American than it is Japanese. It's Hebrew. And yet, on the other hand, Christianity has always been intended to be American and Japanese and German and Ugandan and Filipino and Indian and to the ends of the earth. So today we're going to read Acts 12, verse 25, all the way to the end of chapter 13, verse 52. And we're going to see how the fact that we are here this morning is both unbelievable and inevitable. We're going to see how it has always been God's plan from the beginning of time to bring his incorruptible life That was promised to the Jews through the line of David to the entire world because of Jesus Christ, who alone can free us from our sin. And so to that end, we will look at today's text, beginning with seeing two things. The first one, that God continues to accomplish his old work of salvation in chapter 12, verse 25 through chapter 13 through 12, or verse 12. And secondly, that he does this in an unbelievable way, that is forgiveness of sins through Jesus, which has always been the plan, verses 12 through 41. And though the message will be rejected, and it will be messy, it will never 
be defeated in verses 42 through 52. So let's read, let's start by reading Acts 12, 25 through 13, 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is what the meaning or for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. In these verses... Friends, we see that the Holy Spirit is undeterred in his salvation plan. Despite the loss of prominent church leaders, despite opposition by magicians. Because in fact, the leaders of the Christian church are simply messengers. And so the message itself cannot be stopped. Chapter 12, verse 25, directly ties Barnabas and Saul among those who were present at the house of John, parentheses, whose other name was Mark, same guy, they give us two names, so that's helpful, to hear the first-hand testimony of the Apostle Peter, who, if you remember previously, was we were studying, who had just been miraculously freed from prison earlier in chapter 12. And so after he was freed, the Apostle Peter came and bore witness to those who were in this house, including Barnabas and Saul. And then he departed and went to another place. It says in chapter 12, verse 16. 
So even though God miraculously saves Peter from imprisonment and death, he is still separated from the church. The church is still without essential leadership because Peter has gone away. And this seems to be a pattern in the early church, that these, this leadership is disappearing. First, Stephen was martyred, and then James, the brother of John, was also killed, and now Peter has departed and gone somewhere else. So this should leave us asking ourselves, can this church survive? Can they endure this repeated loss? Well, the clear answer is obviously yes, or else we wouldn't be here today. But how can they do that? How can they endure loss again and again and again? Because friends, it is the Holy Spirit who is the true leader of this church, not a particular man. I think that is what Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to communicate to us here. He says explicitly in verse 2 that it was the Holy Spirit that said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This isn't about Saul's work. This isn't even about Peter's work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 3, Luke describes for us the manner in which Barnabas and Saul, these new upcoming leaders, are commissioned to go out to do the work of the Lord. They're commissioned through prayer and through fasting and through the laying on of hands. And there could be a whole sermon, another sermon in here about that. But the symbolism of laying on hands goes far, far back in Jewish tradition. And I'll share with you just a few things. This was how the sacrifice was selected as part of the consecration for Aaron and his sons, the priests. They would lay the hands on those who were be, on the, the bulls that were to be sacrificed for this cause. Likewise, Moses passed on the mantle of leadership by laying his hand on Joshua and blessing him in Deuteronomy 34. And this is how God instructed the entire priestly nation of Levites to be appointed in Numbers 8, 10 through 11. Now I'll read that for you here this morning. Numbers 8, 10 and 11. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel that they may do the service of the Lord. So why does this matter? Because it shows that Saul being sent out is not simply by a group of people with the power of men behind him. But he is selected by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And he has been sanctified before the Lord as an offering to do the service of the Lord. And what is that work? What is that service that Saul is being sent to do? It's the same work 
that Yahweh God has been doing from the very beginning of time. The work that he has been doing through Moses and through Joshua and through Aaron and the Levite priests, through Stephen and James and through Peter. And now that all of those are gone, through Saul. And that work was through all time and is now the salvation of mankind from their sin. That is the work which the Holy Spirit has set apart for these men to share the testimony of the coming or the come Messiah of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who alone has that power to save from sin and death. So the author does everything that he can here. Luke, the author, paints Saul very clearly as the spiritual heir of this heritage of being used by God. He is the spiritual heir of Peter and all of those who have gone before him. And the rest of the chapter are stories that further drive home that point. Even the details of the sermon that we're going to see here in a little while uh, that, that Saul is going to give. All of these details show us this continuity of the work of the Holy Spirit. And before this sermon that I just alluded to, though, let's let's finish this section, because Saul says. Uh, or, but first, Saul encounters a magician uh, again, who's helpfully named magician. That, that helps us to make sure we understand what we're talking about. A magician, his name is magician, uh, in verse 6 through 8. And we see that he is opposing this word of God. But Saul stands up in verse 9 through 12 and rebukes him, saying that he is an enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. And then the Lord strikes him blind for a time, and God's word triumphs note the similarity here between this story and how peter the apostle dealt with another magician whose name was not magician but his name was simeon or uh in or simon in samaria who tried to purchase the power of the holy spirit in acts 8 through 23 so that we have these parallel stories of god's messengers dealing with the opposition let me read for you Acts 8, 22 through 23, because it's amazing how similar it is. This is what the apostle Peter says. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. It's the same thing. Do you see, friends, that Saul is not doing his own thing? He is continuing the work for which he has been set apart. The same thing that Peter did. Because they are both servants of the living God. So, no. Nothing can stop the growth of God's kingdom. Because nothing can stop the work of the Holy Spirit. Not opposition by magicians, not even the repeated murder of the leadership of this Christian movement. 
Nothing can stop God's work. So how does this apply to us this morning, friends? Recognize that God is still doing what he has been doing since the very beginning. He is drawing souls to salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same God who sanctified the priests in Exodus is the same God who rescued Peter from prison, is the same God who used Saul, is the same God who is Lord over our nation and Lord over coronavirus and Lord over the stock market and Lord over your family. He is the same God and he is doing the same work. And I admit that I often wonder the questions in my heart, if not out loud, sometimes, what are you doing, God? What what is happening? Why don't you just come back now and end all of the suffering? What is happening in our world? But friends, I have been incredibly encouraged this week as I read this passage because it shows me that God is not done working. At his old work. He's not done working in us. He's not done working through us. There are still more souls. That must be united with him. So just as Saul proclaimed the good news to Sergius Paulus. And he believed. So too are there those out there. Who have been called to the name of Jesus Christ. Who have not yet believed. And so God will continue to do his work. His old, old work. Until every last one of those who he has called. Has heard that message and believed. So please don't forget. That that is what God is doing. In the midst of all that we see around us. So if you wonder what should you be doing in the time and the place that God has put you in. Then the answer is that you should be working with him as a laborer appointed to testify to the saving power of Jesus Christ. In the middle of the mess, in opposition and danger and death. That is what God has called you to That is how you should work through this pandemic. Testifying to the salvation of Jesus. That's how you should work through the relationships with your spouse and your children. Testifying to the salvation of Jesus. That is how you should raise up your children. Testifying to the salvation of Jesus. That's how you should work through your own sin and your own pride or anger or lack of faith, friends, by testifying to the salvation of Jesus. Because all of those things, as messy and as ugly as they can be, can be used by Jesus to further his work. 
So every day, know that God is accomplishing his work of salvation. And that is what Luke goes on to explain in the next section. That God's old work of salvation goes even farther beyond what anyone has ever expected it to do. Not merely for one group, one people set apart. But that through the offspring of David, through them, to the ends of the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation is a part of this salvation. So let's look at the rest of chapter 13 and see that God's unbelievable ancient plan of salvation has always been to extend incorruptible life to both Jew and Gentile. And friends, that even extends to those of us who are on Zoom here this morning and sitting in these seats. So for the first part of this next section, I'm actually going to summarize verses 12 through 36. Uh, because Paul is going to give a sermon to a congregation of Jews in a synagogue in Antioch. And since he's giving this very amazing sermon, and I suggest you go home and read the, the full text yourself this afternoon, but at least the kids can probably only handle one sermon at a time here this morning. Sermon in a sermon may be too much. Um, so I'm going to summarize here. But as I summarize, I want you to be aware of how similar this sermon is to the one that Peter just gave earlier in Acts in chapter 2 at Pentecost. Because again, both Peter and Paul are working under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And this is his work. We cannot lose sight of that point. So here's the summary for verses 12 through 36. After Paul and Barnabas part ways from John in verse 14, Paul is invited to speak in the Jewish synagogue in Antioch. And he's specifically invited to bring, quote, a word of encouragement for the people. It says in verse 15. So he opens by saying, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. How's that for a compelling intro? I almost started like that, but I decided not to. (laughs) And then, after he does that, he covers 450 years of Jewish history in verses 17 through 20. From God's salvation of the people of Israel from Egypt to them receiving the lands of Canaan. And then he talks about the period of history of the judges and the prophets. And then in verse 21 and 22, he reminds the people of their kings starting with Saul and continuing on through King David. Then in verse 23 through 25, he identifies Jesus as a descendant of David about whom John the Baptist preached. And then he details Jesus' crucifixion at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, saying in verse 29 and 30 this, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared to many witnesses. So then Paul quotes two Psalms. Psalm 2, which we've read this morning, and Psalm 16. 
which he says were prophetic promises looking forward to Jesus and his resurrection. Because even King David, as great as he was, died and saw corruption. But Jesus never did. And so look how this sermon concludes in verses 37 through 41, which I will read. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that will not be believed, even if one tells it to you. Friends, in these verses, we see that God has been at work and has planned this salvation through Christ's death and his resurrection in exactly the manner that it occurred from the very beginning. So Paul is invited to give this word of encouragement in verse 15. And what is that word of encouragement? He testifies to the fulfillment of God's plan to bring incorruptible life. He points at all of this history and he says, look, hundreds of years of waiting for God's Messiah. From the line of David have finally been fulfilled. What an encouragement that is. God's promises are true. But friends, he says, our expectation of God's promises have been too small. Not only is this Messiah a man after God's own heart, like David, but he is God's own son, it says in verse 33. And not only will he be a king like David, but he will be raised up by God to an incorruptible life. And so he will reign forever. How can that be? Verse 38 says that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins have been proclaimed to you. Now that would have potentially been very shocking to a Jewish audience. The eternal rule and the kingship of the Messiah was not expected to have anything to do with internal sin. Salvation from, from political oppression, yes, that was the Messiah's job. A nation empowered by God, yes. Justice and judgment on Israel's enemies, Yes. But forgiveness from sin. Huh. Isn't that what sacrifice is for? Isn't that what the law of Moses 
the cornerstone of Jewish faith was supposed to do. So that would give the Jewish audience pause. But an even greater shock in verse 39. Remember says this. And by him everyone. Remember that later. Everyone. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed. By the law of Moses. To imply that this salvation of Jesus was somehow greater than the salvation through the law of Moses would have been incredibly hard to believe for devout Jews. And like Tom said last week, hard to believe things easily become unbelieved things. And so Paul warns them not to underrate God. And he does that by quoting again from Scripture, tying together God's work of salvation back to his ancient work of salvation. He says uh, in, in Habakkuk 1.5 is what he quotes. And he says this, Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In the case of Habakkuk, God was going to use an unjust nation that was separated from him to bring about his justice. To use an unjust nation to accomplish justice, that's unbelievable. And now, God's Messiah is going to fulfill God's salvation, not by conquering Rome, as everyone expected, but by conquering, friends, sin and death forever. That is something that the law of Moses was never intended to do. In fact, it was meant to show how impossible that victory would be for anyone but God. Friends, we serve a God who absolutely loves to work in unbelievable ways. And he has always loved to work in unbelievable ways. So how does this apply to us this morning? Friends, that is the God we serve who delights in accomplishing his ancient work of salvation in the most unbelievable ways. He uses the mess. He uses our greatest weakness to testify to his strength. He transforms our failures into his greatest masterpieces of grace. He takes the pain of a broken, sinful world and he dries our tears and he replaces it with unbelievable joy. So God uses a time right now when our nation is more divided and more isolated than it has ever been. And what does he do with that? He pulls people into the brotherhood of his church 
even among those who are on the other side of the planet through Zoom. He saves souls. So why does this keep surprising us? Because this is how God has always worked. He planned from the beginning of time to send his son to incarnate as a human person than to live a perfect, acceptable life in accordance with an impossible law and then to die as a sacrifice. But then to be raised incorruptible, victorious over death forever. Friends, this is all of Israel's history pointing to this fact that God and God alone accomplishes his work of salvation. And that is the same God who we worship today, who plans and accomplishes the unbelievable. And so Paul says that the people of Israel shouldn't really be surprised by this, but he knows the truth that many of them will be blinded. They simply won't believe that such a thing could be God's plan, even if someone shows them. But friends, guess what? Even that unbelief is a part of God's plan. God knows that his incredible message of salvation will be rejected by so many of those who should be the first to embrace it. But he uses even that rejection to accomplish his undefeatable plan. That is why God laughs at those who oppose him. Because their opposition is just another tool in his victory. So let's finish the chapter, verses 42 through 52. And we'll see how this rejection itself becomes a tool in God's ancient, unbelievable, undefeatable plan. As they went out, the people begged that these things from that sermon might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they uh, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord 
was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In these verses, we see that God's plan of salvation was always intended to extend beyond a single people to every tribe and tongue and nation. And how would it do this? Through rejection to the ends of the earth. In verses 30, or 43 and 44, it seems like this message is being warmly accepted. Almost the whole city comes to hear this good news of the plan of God. And in case we forget what this essential nature of the good news is, let's look back again at verses 28 and 39 one more time. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone who believes. That includes not simply the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And it's understandable why the Jews would be indignant about this, isn't it? Remember those hundreds of years of history that we just learned? They were set apart. They were, they were preserved by God because that was their defining heritage. And it is unbelievable that God would have them go to so much, to go through so much, to suffer so greatly at the hands of these very unbelievers, of God's enemies, simply to extend salvation to them? That's unbelievable. But friends, that's what God does. That is his work. He makes a way for his enemies to become his children. So in verse 47, Paul quotes again from the Old Testament, from the prophets, Isaiah 49, 6. He says this, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. It is too light a thing. Only for God to save Israel. But to make them a part of his glorious plan of salvation. Because that is how big God is. He has always intended this set-apartness of Israel not to be an end unto itself, but to be a beacon to the nations, calling them to a God so unbelievable that he always planned to send his son 
as a sacrifice for them. That is the bigness of God. And in the same way, his salvation plan for eternal life, he mentions in verse 46, that is even so much greater than the political or national salvation that the Jews were expecting the Messiah to bring. But before we get too down on them, let me assure you, friends, that this eternal life is so much greater than so many of us believe today. It's not merely some future, purely spiritual state. Again, like Tom said last week, floating on a cloud, singing Gregorian chants. The eternal life of God. The incorruptible life of God. It began the moment that Jesus stepped out of the grave on Easter. And it will carry on in those who have been washed by his sacrifice into a future that is far, far greater than the purely spiritual one that we imagine. As much above that as it is above the purely political salvation that the Jews were expecting. And so the Gentiles who receive gladly this salvation rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. And so God's word advances undefeated. Even as persecution from those who are in high standing the women of high standing and the leading men, even as that persecution drives Paul and Barnabas out of the district, they leave filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 52. Why? Because they are accomplishing the work for which they were set apart. Just as Israel was set apart to be a beacon, so Paul and Barnabas are set apart to be a beacon unto the ends of the earth. To suffer rejection and persecution, revilement and pain at the hands of God's enemies. Just like the people of Israel. To become living sacrifices, which they received through the laying on of hands testifying to the unbelievable love of God. A love so great that Jesus Christ came to be the perfect sacrifice. To be the first raised by God to the incorruptible life, defeating death, so that everyone who believes can likewise be raised out of our sin to that same life. And that, friends, applies to us this morning exactly as it did to those who were in the crowd hearing Paul in Antioch. If you do not know this incorruptible, eternal life, then please believe in Jesus and be freed from the sin that nothing else could possibly free you from.
And if you do believe, then you too have been set apart for the work of the Holy Spirit. Continuing to testify to God's unbelievable salvation to the ends of the earth until a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for the unbelievable plan that has brought us all here this morning. Whether on Zoom or in person, Lord, from around the world, God, your plan is moving forward. God, you use even our worst mess to draw people to you, God. We thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives, in us and through us. May we continue to work in your world as your ambassadors and your messengers who have been sent by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may you draw all of the souls that your son has paid for. Amen.